are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up this week again with step number 22 on vainglory. And if you remember, John, at the beginning of this step, uh, wasn't sure why the fathers make this a distinct uh, passion, uh, that he sees it so tightly connected to to pride as something that uh, is really the seed of it, if you will. Uh, an acorn, as an acorn becomes a tree, vainglory becomes, you know, the, the mighty oak of uh uh, of pride, and so he's he's leading us through this, and um, this kind of self-focus that can emerge within this the spiritual life, and he'll begin to speak to us about some of the things that act as remedies uh, for us here this evening. So again, we are on number 28, page 167. Number 28, he who has sold himself to vainglory leads a double life. Outwardly, he lives with monks, but in mind and thought, he is in the world. And so in some ways, it is very uh, easy to uh, maintain the external appearance, uh, to, to live as a monk, to have all the external vestiges uh, of it, but not in mind and heart uh, to, truly, to truly be one. So to have one's mind still very much within the, the world and attached to the things of this world rather than entering fully into the monastic life and uh, to be seeking the one thing necessary to immerse oneself in if you will into the furnace of the love of god to allow the mind to enter into the heart more and more deeply through constancy in prayer and uh and so he warns us again, you know, not to focus on appearances. They aren't ends in themselves, that they are to, to lead us to Christ or they fall short of their mark. Number 29, if we ardently desire to run towards the state of well-being on high, we should be eager to taste the glory that is above. He who has tasted that will despise all earthly glory. For I should be surprised if anyone could despise the latter unless he had tasted the former. And so John tells us that once one has had a taste of the things of the kingdom, of this experience of the intimacy 
that one can experience with God, the life and the love that one is drawn into through prayer and the participation in the glory of the kingdom, that one's attachment to the things of this world begins to diminish and diminish very uh, quickly, that once one has tasted it, one begins to run uh, towards Christ and towards the things that draw us to him. And uh, so I think it speaks to us about uh, the depth of our desire. And again, we see it come up here in the writings of the Desert Fathers, that they weren't men driven simply by uh, self-discipline or the desire to discipline themselves, but rather driven by the desire for God. And those who understood very well what they were lacking and, uh, and so were willing to strip away everything, to set aside everything as if it were refuse uh, and in order to be able to take hold of uh, what perhaps they had tasted in small measure in the spiritual life. And it is the same desire that we are to cultivate in our spiritual life, uh, where we have this overwhelming sense that we, we are lacking, that we are incomplete outside of that relationship with God and what he alone can give us. And uh, the more clearly that we begin to see that, the more swiftly we begin to pursue the things that uh, make that relationship deepen or allowed to deepen. Number 30, often after, having, after being stripped by vainglory, we turn and strip it more cleverly. I've seen some who begin spiritual activity out of vainglory, and although they made a bad start, yet the end proved praiseworthy because they changed their intention. And so I think John recognizes here that we can enter into the spiritual life as we enter into so many different things in this world, that we can be driven by self-interest. And, uh, uh, and no matter how pure our motives might be when we first enter into the spiritual life, that even what is good within us has to be purified by the grace of God, even our virtues. And, uh, and so John says, there are those who have been driven by vainglory, by this desire to see themselves as religious or to others to see their commitment and uh, to admire them or to be seen as wise. And after entering into the life and seeing, you know, there can be a lot that's mundane about it, a lot that's hidden about it, uh, very difficult, not offering any kind of satisfaction in terms of uh, one's self-esteem. And once that vainglory is stripped away and the intention is purified, uh, then they can run with that swiftness. That deep desire for God can begin to emerge. Um, I don't think it would be John's counsel that one would uh, enter into the religious life with vainglory, because I think uh, once that disappears, so can our desire for God and our desire for the spiritual life. Uh, and when we are faced simply with the struggle that goes on internally and that is hidden uh, to everyone within the world, other than perhaps one spiritual director or confessor, and uh, the subtle movements of the mind and the heart. 
He goes on to say, he who is proud of his natural advantages, I mean, cleverness, ability to learn, skill in reading, a clear pronunciation, quick understanding, and all such gifts received by us without labor, will never obtain the supernatural blessings, because he who is unfaithful in a little is also unfaithful and vainglorious in much. And so a person who, who takes uh, great delight in, in the natural gifts that they have uh, and attribute them simply to uh, themselves and focus upon them and uh, see themselves perhaps as above others because they possess them uh, will not progress within the, the spiritual life. And it's interesting how he puts it here. Uh, because he who is unfaithful in little is also unfaithful and vainglorious in much. That if we aren't grateful for the, the natural gifts that God has bestowed upon us, and we do not attribute those gifts to him and uh, arising out of his mercy, then when we begin to look at the things that are of enduring value, then we are going to be unfaithful with these as well. And uh, and that's certainly of greater weight for us in the spiritual life. When we begin to assume that certain spiritual gifts, uh, again, arise purely out of our, our own efforts or because of our, our, our character or our personality, rather than arising out of the grace of God. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised, you know, as we've seen so much within the Everkitinos as well as in uh, St. John, that uh, we are led along that path of humility very quickly. We are humbled by life in one way or another, and uh, either through failure or falling into temptation, sin, through illness, you know, when we are humbled physically and experience our poverty, uh, in the near-death experiences often is a point of conversion for many of the saints where they come face to face with their own mortality. Uh, they're humbled by that and turn toward God. And, uh, and so it is, must be with us as well uh, to let go of the illusion that we rise by our own strength. It's always he who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. Carrying on in number 32, he writes, For the sake of extreme dispassion, rich gifts, miracle working, and prophetic powers, many exhaust their bodies in vain. They forget themselves, poor wretches, since it is not toil so much as humility that is the mother of such perfections. And so there can be sort of this allure of what we see at times within the saints, uh, this capacity uh, for uh, being able to see things ahead of time, uh, this ability to heal, uh, to read the minds of those who are coming to them for confession. Uh, certain other extraordinary things that manifest themselves in, in their lives. 
prophetic powers, as he mentions here. Uh, but John's point is that that some can seek those again as ends in themselves, and and really drive themselves in the ascetic life to the point that they become severely weakened. They they drive themselves in a pitiless fashion, thinking that it is the asceticism itself that is going to produce this, uh, rather than are not providing any impediment to the action of God's grace within us. Uh, this is really our goal, you know, to strip away the attachments that we have, uh, the, the passions, uh, the habitual sins that are active in our life in order that God might transform us in accord with his wisdom and his will, and that he might act as he will through us to accomplish his purpose, not only our own sanctification and salvation, uh, but also uh, assisting others in that process as well. Any comments so far? All right. Yes. Did I hear somebody? Mm -hmm. um, can you explain what you meant by end in itself? Well, there is a kind of delight that one can have in seeing oneself as an ascetic or uh, one who is generous uh or one who is a prayer and i think uh to understand it we need only look to the teachings of christ and we've mentioned this before the gospel that's read in the latin rite on ash wednesday where the lord says you know if, if the a person fast in in a way in such a way that he is seen or that he can be seen uh, then he has his reward. And the, the Greek there is a little bit more specific. It is that he has his payment in full, that that is what he gets, that he is seen as others or sees himself as disciplined, as one who has the capacity for fast, fasting for a long period of time. And so he might even make himself look a little glum unshowered and unshaven or not well, unshaven is a good thing but uh unshowered maybe and uh hair all messed up and you know looking sort of uh, glum and same thing the lord talks about giving alms or praying uh in the street corners you know all these things to be seen and over and over again he uses that phrase they have their reward they have their payment in full but when you fast go into your room and uh, where you're alone with the Father, and the Father who sees sees all things uh, will will see what you're offering to Him in and through the fast, what is truly within the heart. And so, when we are tempted to make an end of it, in an uh, end, make it an end in itself, we are simply seeking to stroke the ego, to exalt ourselves, if only again in our own minds, to have the sense of ourselves as engaging deeply in the spiritual life. And so uh, being disciplined or being generous, uh, where again, our hearts and our minds can be very far from Christ or listening to him and where he might be guiding us. Okay. 
Number 33. He who asks God for gifts in return for his labors has laid unsure foundations. He who regards himself, himself as a debtor will unexpectedly and suddenly receive riches. So when we do things with the expectation of a specific reward, then we are sort of building on an un uncertain an unsteady foundation that, again, uh, the focus is on the self, even if it might be very subtle, and even if what it is that we desire might seem to be holy within our eyes. The safer path that John puts before us, as all the fathers do, is that of humility, to acknowledge one's own weaknesses and imperfections, to see oneself as a debtor, and it is then that one will suddenly experience the, the flood of God's mercy, uh, sort of like the publican in the temple. You know, he comes in with no illusions about himself and simply beats his breast before God saying nothing. Or the son and the story of the, of the prodigal, prodigal son, you know, I've sinned against you, father, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, make me one of your servants. And what takes place is this outpouring of love and mercy to receive his son back. And, uh, and not simply to receive him back as a slave, but uh, to clothe him, you know, again, in the best of garments and the uh, slaughter of the fattened calf to rejoice because his son who was lost has now been found. That uh, it's in humbling ourselves that we experience what is most precious that comes to us from God, which is the depth of his love and his, his mercy. And uh, there's nothing sweeter than that and nothing greater that, than God, that God has to give to us than the depth of his love. And so we can often, I think, at times seek something much less uh in the spiritual life than what god truly desires to give us and i think even the story of the prodigal son you know it's he goes back with the desire simply to be fed you know to have what even the slaves and the servants uh were were eating and his father showers upon him uh that which is in abundance you know the, the most precious gifts that he has Okay, number 34. Do not believe the winnower when he suggests that you should display your virtues for the benefit of the hearers. For what shall a man be profited if he shall bring profit to the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing so edifies our neighbor as sincere and humble speech and manners. For this serves as a spur to others, never to be puffed up. And what can be more beneficial than this? So it can be a, a subtle kind of temptation uh, to, to speak about uh, even the actions of God in one's life in such a way that one is putting oneself forward. Uh, because... Behind that can be this subtle temptation by the evil one. Again, to, to have people look at us or admire us, 
that it is the humble living and the love of others and the selflessness that speaks in a far more powerful way. And again, when we put ourselves forward, uh, it is then that we block people from seeing that which is far greater. And uh, I'm, not, I'm, never, I'm not saying that one should never witness to you know, the mercy of God in our life or be able to speak to others about it. But I think there can be a kind of risk in doing this and uh, this kind of witnessing that uh, takes place a lot of times where one is talking about one's personal story. And there is a kind of intimacy that exists between God and the soul that should be held precious and protected. And the, also the desire within uh, to be, and the, the heat of that desire and then that love to be guarded and protected as well. It's often said when you open the furnace door over and over again, it, it loses its heat. And, uh, to, to do so, you know, to be talking about these things that go on in one's spiritual life uh, and to be holding them up, the personal things, uh, can place us in jeopardy and also have people focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, there's always a kind of danger, and we've seen it in recent times too, that sometimes people are blessed with certain charismatic gifts in uh, speaking, they have this capacity to talk about the, the faith with great eloquence and so become uh, very much in demand and uh, and the, can take hold of them. And, uh, and whether their spiritual life begins to, to diminish or their prayer life diminishes, then before you know it, one falls away from the life of grace. And John will get into this in greater detail in the step on pride, that we have to be careful, even in this kind of praise that we offer to others, not to, to lead them down a kind of path that can lead to, to temptation or, or that can draw them into pride, that we always want to be grateful for the gifts of God and how he might act through others. And we can certainly give thanks to God for that, but not to overly focus upon the individual. Again, uh, as if these things arise uh, uh, simply from them rather than from God's mercy. Everything should direct us toward him. And it's interesting, you know, over, over the years in reading the Desert Fathers, you don't find too much you find them talking about stories of other monks as illustrative examples, but you don't find too much in regards to uh, personal, like autobiographies uh, of their own interior state. I think it would have been a foreign uh, idea for them that the spiritual life is such and that the dangers of the temptation to pride are such that to talk about oneself in such a deeper, detailed fashion uh, carries with it too much danger. And so you don't find a great deal of that within the writings of the Eastern Fathers. Okay, a comment just popped up here. 
uh, Art writes, I recently heard in a homily, the gospel teaches us not to be like the Pharisee who says, thank you, God, that I'm not like the publican. But we must be careful that in our heart of hearts, we're not also saying, thank you, God, I'm not like that Pharisee. Vainglory can strike from any side. Absolutely. That uh, we can, it's easy to hold up the Pharisee and to read the passages from the gospel in this kind of aggressive fashion, rather than seeing them within within ourselves. Uh, and we should always read the gospels if, as, as if they apply to us directly, because they do. And even though the Pharisees have disappeared over the course of time as a group, they're still very much present uh, within the hearts of us as Christians. We, we can be every bit as self-absorbed or condemning uh, of others and lacking in mercy or lacking a sense of our need for, for personal repentance. So good point. Okay, number, let's see, one more question here, comment. Uh, Erica Wanko, one method of evangelization is to share from our own experience instead of preaching what one should, should and should not do, since no one can argue with our experience and it's more non-threatening way to share. How would we evangelize with what you said in mind? Well, I think that's why, you know, I wasn't trying and I have to avoid, you know, sweeping generalizations, that there are times that we can speak about specific struggles and the and are engaging in them in the course of our, our life. And indeed, it is experiential knowledge that is most important. But experiential knowledge doesn't mean that we necessarily have to talk about our particular experience in order to communicate it. We can speak most deeply and speak to the heart of the other if we are speaking out of love. And uh, we don't necessarily have to bring our personal experiences into focus in order to be able to do that. And again, you know, I don't want to be... Uh, I don't want to overplay uh, uh, this in, in some ways that, you know, again, we can tell, you know, stories from our life and things such as that. But I think uh, there there is a certain uh, danger in this that they put forward that is worth our considering, that vainglory and pride are so subtle that they can work on work on us and they might not work on us the first hundred times even that we do something like that that we might talk about ourselves a lot uh and our personal experiences whether it's from the pulpit or uh in some other venue and not have not have it phase us and but then become vulnerable uh, because we aren't watching the heart we we lose a kind of vigilance in that regard, and where, where we are seeking to draw people's attention to Jesus Christ crucified. You know, to keep in mind what Paul says, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what we are 
seeking to draw individuals to. This is what speaks to the depths of the heart. And uh, again, you know, I think it's our living that truly when we become the embodiment uh, or the incarnation of that reality in our life, it's going to speak far more with far more power than our, again, our talking about it. Remember again, the story from the, I believe it was the Rigatinos where the, they bring in the young woman who's possessed by the demon and she runs up and slaps the monk across the face and he turns the other cheek. And it's the act of humility uh, that uh, cast out the demon. And in fact, it's humility, John will go on uh, to tell us, that is the, the most powerful of, of all the virtues. You know, certainly something that the, the evil one cannot mimic or even understand, uh, but that contains in it, in, uh, in a sense, all the other virtues. Uh, so that even where we might be lacking, uh, maybe even in a great way in certain areas of our life and, and our struggle for virtue, to come before the Lord uh, with humility and to stand before others with humility uh, is to bear witness to the kingdom in an extraordinary way. And, you know, I think in our day and age, we, we put so much value on words or information, communication, and uh not everything out there is worthy of consumption. We know that, you know, that uh, there's a lot of junk, out on, uh, junk food on the internet in particular, and we could feed on it constantly. Uh, but that can be true, I think, among us as Christians too. We can talk a lot about the faith, uh, and we can talk a lot about the church and liturgy and uh, problems that exist within the life of the church and really not uh, be drawing any closer to Christ ourselves or drawing others closer to him. In fact, we can create uh, an experience of agitation rather than the peace of the kingdom. Whereas if you were to sit in the presence of a person uh, in complete silence, if they're filled with Christ, filled with the love of Christ, then that's what you're going to experience. And St. Seraphim of Seraph is often quoted that uh, he who has the peace of the kingdom within him, the peace of Christ, will convert thousands. You know, there's nothing said there about, you know, his talking about it or talking about his experience. It's the, the peace of the kingdom made that is so present within that has an impact upon others. I think we want, uh, and last thought here, and we'll move on, is to avoid adding to the noise of the world. You know, that the, the word that we are to bear witness to is Christ. And uh, we don't want to diminish uh, our proclamation of that in any way. Uh, just one little comment here, Audrey Block. I don't know if you can hear me, but your your camera's on and your work, and maybe if you could just uh, turn off your video, uh, that'd be helpful. Thanks, uh, uh, Andrea and Anthony. Andrea, Andrea. 
start video. Hello, Father David. Uh, it is uh, blocking us from you. Pardon me? Go ahead. I think they got cut off. Can everybody hear me? Okay. You there, Andrea and Anthony? Okay, they, they might, their connection might have got hung up. And so we'll give them a chance to come back here. Yeah, they're, they're rejoining again. So we'll give them a chance here in a little bit. Uh, anybody else have any comments? Okay. Number 35. One who had the gift of sight told me what he had seen. Once he said, when I was sitting in an assembly, the demon of vainglory and the demon of pride came and sat beside me, one on either side. The one poked me in the side with the finger of vainglory and urged me to relate some vision or labor which I had done in the desert. But as soon as I had shaken him off, saying, let them be turned back and confounded that desires evils for me, then the demon on my left at once said in my ear, well done, well done. You have become a great, great by conquering my shameless mother. Turning to him, I made apt use of the rest of the verse and said, let them be turned back straight away in shame that say unto me, well done, well done. And to my question, how is vainglory the mother of pride? He replied, praises exalt and puff one up. And when the soul is exalted, then pride seizes it, lifts it up to heaven, and casts it down to the abyss. So this is a really interesting, and Andrea and Anthony, I know that you had to join, so we'll get back to you here in a moment. This is a very interesting thought here, and he begins to make this distinction between vainglory and pride for us, that uh, that vainglory can begin to lead us to have this exalted vision of the self and pride does the rest of the job if you will that it lifts us up to the heights of heaven in the sense of uh giving us the the thought the illusion that we are equal to god uh that we conquer as it were the evil one perhaps by our own wits and or by our knowledge of scripture even and then thrust us down uh like like satan himself was thrust down from heaven and so we begin to see are beginning to see uh john's vision uh come come forward here for us here uh and why he envisions pride as sort of being uh the the fullness of where vainglory would take us that they're they're tied so intimately together okay a andrea and anthony glad that you reconnected there sorry our uh, our zoom uh, just crashed <laughs> so i uh was just uh, going back to a point that you were making about uh, you know the uh, sharing of the personal testimony I uh, just wanted to say, and I know I know you mentioned that uh, you know one shouldn't make sweeping overgeneralizations. Just wanted to make the point that uh, the personal testimony of uh, fellow Christians was uh, integral for both Andrew and me 
while we were during the process of conversion and uh, trying to learn more about the faith. And uh, one uh, uh, passage that stands out in the Bible is that, you know, when they, in Apocalypse, when they talk about the war with the serpent, they say that they shall conquer him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So we have found the testimony of fellow Christians very powerful uh, in our own uh, faith journey. So I just wanted to share that. And I know that you said that we shouldn't make sweeping over generalizations, but yeah, that, that has been very fruitful for us. Right. And yeah, and I think for many others as well. Uh, again, I think when we look to the Eastern Fathers, we do see sort of this difference uh, from the West and what they write, how they approach the life of of prayer, even the use of discursive uh, reason, thought, imagination, much different. They uh, tend to uh, uh, move towards this kind of simplicity in thought and uh, no less intimate, not seeking any less the love of God, but uh, moving from this kind of multiplicity of thought and uh, the sort of agitation within towards this silence, which opens up then uh, one to have this encounter with God. Again, sort of what we see in John, even John of the Cross in the, in the West, uh, to encounter God as he is in himself, not to uh, place any impediment there. And I think the Eastern Fathers carried this over, certainly to the spiritual life as a whole, you know, the, the value of silence and solitude you know, not only for those living in the desert or monks, uh, but uh, as something that allows us to be able to listen to God so that even when we are speaking of him, that we are truly speaking of him and not ourselves. And that in, until the heart is purified of vainglory, of pride, the, the things that lead the ego to place ourselves at the center, uh, then it can be dangerous uh, to to talk, you know, constantly about the self, as it were. So yes, you know, I think uh, we we can, you know, speak of our own personal experiences, uh, but we even we want to be guarded even with something such as this. That is what is good, uh, because what is good can be uh, turned into a distraction or. Uh, be, become something even far worse, and um, but your, your points well, well taken. Here, I think Ambrose follows up here. The text here of a thirty-four uh, specifically speaks of displaying virtues. It's akin to Christ's exhortation not to be showy when fasting, not to be showing when giving, not to let the right hand know what the left is doing. I don't see it speaking against witnessing what God has done for us. Uh, yes, that's true. Here in this particular paragraph, uh, that's a good clarification that uh, it's uh, not to be showy in the spiritual life. Uh, I think uh, maybe I'm leapfrogging more into what's coming up in the section on pride and uh there still is this kind of danger of putting the self forward and being showy, as he discussed in the paragraphs above, about one's natural gifts of glorifying them. 
And uh, I think sometimes there can be this temptation in talking about even the things that God has done within our life to become overly enamored or overly focused upon them. And one of the dangers, I think, in the spiritual life that we've talked about is when one does have a genuine experience, and this came up in the Eurocatinos on Monday, uh, that when even when one does have this genuine vision, say, uh, from God, that uh, it is put to the test. And even if it proves to be true, discerned to be true, that what one takes hold of is the faith that it produces, that it draws one to God even more and uh, deepens that desire for him and to give one's life to him. And in this, you know, I think in every way, we again, Christ is our standard and our model. You know, he who came to do one thing was the will of the Father and uh, to, to obey him. And uh, from the incarnation through the cross, and uh, this is uh, this kind of cruciform, humble love uh, is what is to, to shape our actions and interactions with others. So, again, just that we are attentive to what's going on internally within the heart. Lawrence Martone writes, regarding self-revelation, there is the there's the point that the focus should be on God and not on ourselves when it is expressed, right? That, uh, that the, the detail does end up leading others toward Christ and what it is that he accomplishes within one's life. Number 36. There is a glory that comes from the Lord, for he says, those who glorify me, I will glorify. And there is a glory that dogs us through diabolical intrigue, for it is said, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. You may be sure that it is the first kind of glory when you regard it as harmful and avoid it in every way possible, in every possible way, and hide your manner of life wherever you go. But the other, you will know when you do something, however trifling, hoping that you will be observed by men. So one can sort of see where there's a diabolical intrigue where one seeks to live the hidden life, not to draw the attention to oneself, but towards Christ, where the evil one will seek to pull the attention back upon, uh, upon ourselves. Uh, but there is another aspect of this, where this kind of desire for glory can dog us, he says, where we do something and no matter how small it is, there is this hope in the back of our mind that somebody's going to see it and somebody's going to say something about it and praise us about it, whether it's a priest, you know, standing outside the door of the church or the chapel, you know, wanting somebody to comment about his homily and, you know, looking for, for that. Uh, and, uh, or, you know, simply somebody acknowledging something good that we've done. Uh, again, the, these, uh, this is where the evil one is re uh, uh, relentless and never rest. 
this kind of intrigue that he'll engage in, in terms of trying to manipulate our thoughts. And uh, I think it's the kind of introspection that we see in the fathers that allowed them to identify this very clearly. They could see that even again in the desert where they had removed themselves from so much that they could still easily be pulled uh, in this direction toward pride or vainglory. Number 37, abominable vainglory suggests that we should pretend to have some virtue that we do not possess. Spurring us on by the text, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And so vainglory will use, and you know, who know, the, it's not as though the evil one does not know scripture. He knows it backwards and forwards. And so can even use something like this, uh, a line from scripture, uh, in order to convince us that we are right in taking a certain path, that we are right in uh, putting ourselves forward in such a way that others can see what we are doing. And uh, again, you know, I've often used this example of Philip Neary, and I find that even though, you know, he left no writings, that there's often this example in his life or little sayings that he had that were very powerful. And uh, one is, you know, when members would enter the com community was to, to love to be unknown, love to be unknown. And often early in this, their spiritual life or their life in the community, they had, you know, very basic tasks. They weren't given the responsibility of preaching or teaching that the focus was on this pursuit of virtue and the life of prayer and service, and uh, and so John is is warning us here that uh, unless we learn this, you know, this love to be unknown, to do things purely by love, whether they are seen by others or not, then we we can be overcome by the temptations of the evil one that there's a multitude of ways that he can trip us up and so again the, the idea is uh not so much to diminish the idea of speaking about how god has you know certainly acted acted in our life and what uh he's brought about in our life uh but the focus again is on guarding the heart that can be misled and that, that's where we're, where great care is to be shown. Anthony uh, writes, there might be another vainglory to magnify yourself evil, magnif to magnify to yourself evil mental motions and temptations and to fixate on what I have done. This is also pharisaical. Yeah, to see, I think one's sin is so great that it is beyond the, the mercy of God, uh, that, that what one has done uh, is so grave that it is beyond uh, our Lord's reach. And uh, in some ways we can put the log in our own eye, you know, in, in the sense that uh, we lose sight of God, the, what we see only is our sin. And this is one of the reasons that, 
the fathers emphasize the importance of prayer within the ascetic life. Uh, because if we, we are simply examining the heart and, uh, and seeing our own poverty, and yet we aren't constantly gazing at the love and the mercy of God, then we can be drawn into despondency, that uh, we can lose sight of him altogether and think that he's not present or wonder how could he love us, you know, when, you know, I, you know, haven't been praying or I haven't been fasting. In fact, we came across one of those stories uh, within the Evergatinas where, you know, one of the younger monks keeps uh, sort of, uh, arguing with the elder, but, you know, I, I haven't prayed at all. I haven't been able to fast at all. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And has to be encouraged by the elder uh, to, to trust in the mercy of God, that it's not dependent upon what we do. Certainly that, that grace helps transform us in order that we might uh, remove impediments to our loving, but those actions aren't, uh, or his love isn't dependent upon those, those actions or those virtues. And I think that's what we, you know, hear within the scriptures that while we were still enemies of God, that this is what God does to us for us you know that he, he comes he takes our flesh upon himself and the, the burden the weight of our sin and death itself that the the love is such that it uh is not uh, uh driven away by our poverty and, and in many ways our poverty our need attracts the gaze of this godly love and you know i think Sometimes maybe this is hard for us to understand because we often the way that we look at the weaknesses of in ourselves and others, it's we we don't look uh, uh, with that same compassionate eye and see what God has made them and us to be and what he's given us in his only begotten son. And so, you know, if there's anything that we do, it would be pray and the simplest prayer, you know, calling out to Jesus, the Jesus prayer. You know, I think this is why it's become so powerful over the centuries that with such a swiftness, it takes us again where we need to be. Lawrence writes, our real business is to allow God to shed his light through us. And since the light belongs to him, he will know where to focus it and to what extent. Our endeavor should be to make ourselves transparent so as not to eclipse his brilliance. Yeah, Erasmo Maricacus, what, what a great writer, uh, so, so thoughtful. Uh, he's come up here a number of times before. Uh, he's became a religious uh, since beginning his translation on the Gospel of Matthew. But again, I can't recommend his writing highly enough. It's very much like what we find within the fathers. Uh, and he continues, it seems to me that humility, as was mentioned earlier in step 22, is essential to this endeavor of making ourselves transparent, right, truthful living, allowing that light of Christ to 
shine through us, but also to reveal everything within us uh, in a kind of fearless way, knowing that that light is something that's ultimately healing for us. That God shines it upon us, not to humiliate us, but to lift us up, to exalt us. Number 38. The Lord often brings the vainglorious to a state free of vainglory through the dishonor that befalls them. Uh, this is a hard one. You know, sometimes we go through things in our life that is a dishonor. And, you know, sometimes it's because of something we've done on our own uh, that has brought about a, a fall or sometimes it's the circumstances of life that uh, that humble us and uh, you know leave us in a state where we are understood or we are viewed in a certain way, where people are attributing to us certain motivations, uh, all kinds of things, and uh, it can be hard at those moments to see the action of God, that this can be at times the moment of uh, deep healing for us that actually leads us to great freedom, that there is in some sense uh, uh, that the ego becomes for us this really heavy yoke that we carry. And, you know, when the Lord is trying to free us from it. It feels ever so painful uh, because of the dishonor here that uh, can befall us, as John says. But once one has been freed from it, one begins to experience the yoke for which we are perfectly fit. That is the the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That that uh, kind of yoke that lifts us up. Uh, that the Lord places upon us that's perfectly fit for the work to be done. And uh, it's amazing. We keep reaching back uh, often for the things that oppress us, you know, put that heavy yoke back on me that crushes me down to the ground. Uh, but uh, it's only, I think, once we begin to see, okay, this actually can be a remedy. And this is what John is leading into here in the next a uh, couple of sayings that there is a healing that can come through these experiences that the world often shuns or teaches us to fear and and makes us do everything that we can to cling to our rights in, in certain circumstances where uh, the Lord is actually bringing us to a greater freedom. So number 39. The beginning of freedom from vainglory is the custody of the mouth and love of being dishonored. The middle stage is a beating back of all acts of vainglory and thought. And the end, if there is an end to an abyss, consists in doing those things in the presence of others which bring us dishonor without feeling grief therefrom. So we go from one that's more challenging to the, the, the next here. So to keep custody of one's mouth, 
you know, to watch very closely what it is that we are saying and what it is that we are speaking of. Uh, again, not necessarily putting ourselves forward, uh, but to cultivate even a love of, of being dishonored. And uh, this doesn't mean, I think, uh, the dishonor that's rooted in sin. You know, I think it's the willingness to be seen as foolish in the eyes of the world and for living or want desiring to live in accord with the gospel, to have this be something that shapes our identity, that we begin to take a path in our life where we are letting go slowly, perhaps, of the, the things that we've been attached to over time, moving to more and more of a, a simple life uh, in order that we might become more and more free to love others as well as to, to love God. And uh, this isn't easy, isn't an easy process because as the very moment that we begin this process of simplifying and embracing this uh, life in the gospel, the evil one is working ways to draw us back into it, to pull us right back into us, to set before us, you know, opportunities to uh busy ourselves about what others are doing or simply to busy ourselves in a way that distracts us from this simple life in Christ and this attentiveness to others this capacity to be free to love others without allowing the things of our life to become so burdensome that it blocks out not only God but the the people that are right before us and it's a hard thing, again, because busyness, you know, we may so often make it a virtue when it is really a kind of self, the self-violence of our age that we impose upon ourselves. Uh, then the middle stage, beating back of all acts of vainglory and thought. So it's always, you know, thought is always the harder thing to deal with, that often we can begin to avoid certain actions or circumstances that might be an occasion for us to fall into vainglory. But thoughts can come from the evil one. They could come from ourselves, you know, memories, experiences that we've had, or daydreams. And so to begin to fight that internal battle with a greater consistency and the end, and, you know, he acknowledges there might be no end, certainly in this life, that this is a pretty deep abyss, uh, consistent doing those things in the presence of others that brings dishonor. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read the story of these individuals that are holy fools, you know, uh, that they live this kind of life uh, that draws down upon them the rebuke of others, that they are seen as idiots. And, uh, and part of the reason for this is uh, to be able to cast off this illusion of, of pride and, and vainglory fully, and uh, as well as to be a witness, because usually it's the sanct their sanctity is discovered after the after the fact and uh but and then becomes all the more compelling 
you know, that they, they weren't living for themselves at all, and they weren't living for worldly glory at all. In fact, they did their best uh, to, to step away from it. And, you know, I think if we stop for one day, there are so many ways that we sort of shape our identity. You know, from the moment that we wake up, what we put on, you know, how we comb our hair or our beard or whatever it might be, you know, or how we engage others in conversation, you know, that we are often putting on a mask and, you know, wanting to be seen in a certain light. Nobody wants to, you know, seem stupid. Uh, you know, this is often what keeps people from asking questions or putting forward ideas. You know, there's this underlying fear that is being seen as ridiculous. Uh, and there's, again, when we stop and slow things down, there are these subtle movements uh, within our hearts that lead us to do all these kind of things to prepare ourselves to reveal to the world this certain image rather than not having that be our focus at all. Our focus from the moment that we wake should be Christ. You know, help me to love you. Th thank you for another day. Uh, and to, to direct our attention to him immediately. And rather than having this routine of pulling ourselves together uh, for the world around us, that isn't necessarily connected to anything of God or the kingdom. Rachel writes, I wonder if this movement towards simplifying is somewhere where we have to be led by our Lord, since it is an abyss we can't know how to navigate our way through. We can think we know what kinds of dishonor we can profit by, but it seems we have to wait to be led by only seeking, I'm sorry here, it jumped a little bit, only seeking God's will and what he reveals to us. Yes, you know, and, you know, there are these ways where we've talked about this before, that one is made humble uh, by life or by God, that it isn't something that we reach out and take for ourselves or decide one day, I'm going to be humble today. It's usually because we've seen the truth about ourselves or that we've, again, we've been humbled by life, that we know our poverty, we know the reality of what it what it's like to be dishonored, and the the frustration, the anger, the hatred, resentment that went on in our hearts. How hard we had to fight against that and not to be swallowed up by by the darkness. Then then we come to see that it is only by the the grace of God that we are lift, lifted out of that, and that in the end it has no meaning in regards to our true dignity and, and identity in him as one who's loved with an everlasting love. Uh, David Sudersky mentions the, the movie, The Island, which we've talked about, right, for the image of the holy folk, right, that no one knew. I mean, they saw him exactly as that, as a fool uh, until his death. Or, towards, or or at least towards the end of his life where his true sanctity began to emerge more clearly in their eyes. So a lot to contemplate here and to wrestle with 
And again, that's good. You know, I think important for us to do. And uh, we still have a ways to go here with Vainglory before we enter into Pride, which will be even more challenging. So, but thank you again for all of your comments, questions, and uh, we'll get back to it next week. And uh, keep us in your prayers. Tomorrow's the beginning of our uh, campus ministry uh, activities for, for the year. We have our opening liturgy and reception for the students at the universities. And say a little prayer, if you will, for the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, which I think is a great feast. Oh, no, you just got to wait one minute. Just yeah. a minute. Okay. All right. So why don't we close, as always, with the our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be, Thanks to, God. be to God.